Welcome to Shucks About Everything, a literary podcast with your host, Sean Kilpatrick. Episode 4, Love. He who loves the more is the inferior and must suffer. Tomas Mann, with special guests Matt Forney and Chris Moran. From Victor Hugo's God and the End of Satan, translated by R.G. Skinner. Satan is the Night. 3. If I did not love him, I would not suffer. Let me reascend abysses, but no, bit by bit I fall, I sink, at each effort I slip further. The curse of the night. His means of torture is to worship daylight, but to remain in the dark. This love is sinister, and evil is its fruit. O my light, where art thou? Satan implores you. Do you hear me speak? Return, dawn, dawn, dawn. Do not tell them forever and me never. I suffer, oh, everything is black. I do not see, I hate. I hate, yes, I hate you, human heap, bloodless crowd, because you love him, because God loves you. Because his light sparkles through your bones. Because you immerse your urns in his streams. Because you pass living into nature. Because, while torture torments me, and I have, for vulture, my own soul, you have hope in your eyes and love in your hearts. Men, larvae, nothingness, shadows, harried faces. You are unhappy, O foolish chosen ones. You complain of aging every day, of fading away, of sensing your blood growing cold, and you accuse God how fanciful you are. I have lost more than you. I have seen fall, one after the other, my beams of light in you, merely your hair. Four, unable to rise up even when I desire it. What? Repentant souls fly up from their tombs? Radiant? Owls become doves. Demons forgiven, return to the firmament. And I, abject spectre, seeing them slowly turning white in the dismal night, again becoming angels. Stars, those flowers of the abyss, bloom in the mires. What Caesar has departed? Torquemada, gone away. Osiris, in the cavern where Jehovah holds him, discerns a light and begins to smile. Nimrod is waiting. I have just heard Judas say, in the goal where his crime and I bind him. I now have no more than four million centuries left, chained in the darkness. How happy Judas is, he can count. For all, for everyone, daylight will reappear. Cain, even aged Cain himself, will depart. Whereas I alone shall remain in the mournful desert's bottomless horror. I am lord of the shades. I shall remain wretched forever. 5. But I shall take revenge upon his humanity, upon man whom he created, upon Adam and Eve, upon the smiling soul, upon the breaking day, upon you, star, upon you, wing, you, flower, upon the virgin and the mother, upon the child. Woe unto you, I shall deform the universal countenance. Being serpent, I shall shake my rattle in the darkness. I shall invent gods, Moloch, Vishnu, Baal. I shall use the real to crush the ideal. Stones of Edens to build Sodoms. 
through the branches of the forest of men will be seen my gleaming eyes, and it shall be said it is he. More afraid of evil than inspired by good, the wise shall doubt God. I shall bite the soul. I shall make love unseemly in the hearts of women. I shall mix my cinders with these dying coals, and evil I shall laugh, scratching out all their instincts and all their virtues with the talon of my wings. I shall be so hideous that all eyes shall possess some indefinable darkness, and the evil and the perverse shall grow like field grass. The sun before the indignant judge shall appear, holding handfuls of white hair from his butchered father. I shall say to the poor, steal to the rich oppress. I shall make the mother cast her newborn into the latrines. Tremble, O God, I shall open their breasts with my hands. I shall tear away their steaming hearts and wring from them all crime, horror, betrayal, murder. Akab, Tiberius, Atreus, unto your radiant and sacred creation, you shall be providence and I fate. Better than creating hatred, O emptiness, O blindness, I have created envy. In vain does benevolent God propagate these giants whose soul is full of light beams, genius, love, and heroism. Through denial I eat away at faith. I am Zoilius around Socrates. I call forth Anitus and place Thersites in the presence of Achilles, and all weep, and I make equal by means of poisons the bloating of dwarfs and the splendor of titans. Matter has my sign upon her brow. I quarrel with her. I frighten fathomless water beneath abysses of hail. I compel the ocean and earth which God keeps under his rule to create chaos with me. I fashion enormous deformity with their powers, a monster out of spume, a monster out of crust, leviathan upon the sea, behemoth upon the earth. Everywhere do I complete chaos through hell. The beast through the idol, the rats, weasels, the torpedo, the hyena tearing at skeletons. The slaver of the toad, the tooth of the crocodile, through the bronze, the obi, the faker, and the imam. God passes through the heart of men, but I remain there. His wheel rolls and turns with a side reel sound, but it is my dismal and bloody grain that it grinds. A recoiling Jehovah now senses everywhere a creation of Satan beneath his own. His fire cannot flame without my breath appear. He is the chariot and I the rut. Our forces overlap and I use his pure innocent sun to create plagues, poisons, monsters, deserts. It is God who creates the brow and I the care engraved upon it. He is in the prophet and I in the soothsayers. War and grief, I take from him all his divine swords. The sword of air, wind, the sword of water, rain, lightning sword, the bewilderment of the dazzled earth, and I make terrible use of them, and nature is afraid. From my breath a hydra hatches in the vapor, and the drop of water swells into a mighty torrent. With the bright hearth that warms, I set ablaze. I make from honey gall, I make the reef from the harbor. God blesses the best, I anoint the strongest. God creates the radiant, and I the bloodthirsty. Yes, to crush his children, I shall take his thunderbolts. Yes, I shall draw myself up to my full height. I wish to slay this creator and all that he creates. I wish to torture him in his work, and to hear his death rattle amidst justice and decency corrupted in the fields that war crushes, with its bounding in the peoples delivered up to tyrants. 
and good folk and in saints and the entire human soul. I want that he struggle, spirit beneath matter, that he bleed in the murdered, just man. I want that he writhe, covered with monstrous priests. That he weep, gagged by idolatries. I want that lilies die and roses wither. That from the swan quivering under the beak of vultures. From the beauties, the virtues. From everywhere his blood, his own divine blood, flow on him and drown him. Behold, look heavens, the scaffold is the world. I am the dark executioner and I execute God. God shall die. Thanks to me, the chariots underneath their axles, kings with their power, the eagles with their claws, sinister, obscure dogmas from pontiffs, all that stand upon earth at this time, even the innocent, will have something of God that they will crush beneath their feet in the darkness. My flames creeping beneath the universe shall set him ablaze. I am evil. I am night. I am terror. 6. Have mercy. Forgive me. Summon me back, make away with me, have mercy. Should not all chains be broken, all evil end, and all hatred be extinguished, disappearing amidst your serenity? What? The good is infinite, evil is without limit. You the good, I the evil, is it possible? The world governed by an invisible pair. Of what are you thinking, Lord? A sharing between us? No, you are the countenance, and I the knees. Let me bend and drop, immense master, onto his bedrock of heaven called clemency. O oh, mercy, O oh God, the universe, the lands and waters, the boundless azure full of invisible birds, the glaucous oceans, which roar out their waves, the living enormity, which shine the world's what? It is a balance on which we both bear weight. What say you, sons? He charming, I hideous, what? He on the scale, sons, and I the other. The flesh is my handmaid, and the soul is his apostle. I struggle. We each take sides. To be infinite is to be equal. Your paradise simply balances my prison. Ah, creation presses down on me. Like a mountain, I raise my brow through the chaos, whence my pains fall again as plagues. I writhe without respite, without end, without hope. It is a majesty, such suffering. Yes, it is the enigma, O oh night, of your millions of eyes. The great sufferer faces the great mysterious one. Have mercy, O God, for you yourself I must obtain it. My eternity cast darkness on yours. Before your eye-torch nothing must remain. Everything must change, grow old, and be transformed. You alone exist. Before you all must have an age. And for your grandeur it is an unwelcome cloud, this specter that one can see seated at the heart of your azure heaven, eternal Satan sitting before eternal God. I love him for being beautiful. I, who am so deformed, for one moment let me forget, O memory, I see the angels whisper to him in the dark. What does he say to them? I am jealous. I remember that he once spoke with me, that the light was beautiful. I love him for being good, I, who am evil. Oh, if for the length of a lightning flash, alas, I could but see his shadow appear. Here, at the bottom of my chaos, I adore him. Edward Selon, Ophiolatrist. Better to annul such pretenses through discretion, Selon was game for every ripe lass seeking tenure throughout his cadetship. 
He could fashion himself the spittoon of such wanton lizard interest from a passing teen that his sacrum often produced an audible crinkle to indicate another frenulum soiling in rapport as a girl's clandestinely disarrayed gravity got seconded. Deprived of these Hasslan days enlightened by his horcraft, a wife forged the family dowry, leaving him to chew on just her name and awful presence. He lit out across the empire to swallow skid marks off assorted knickers, pilfering crannies willy-nilly, sought heaping squid grips for a transcript of whose pewter Christ might bow to now, the serpent holding his robes aloft, true chamberpot addict of a heaved religion ballooning inside itself intermittently. He could spew by the dozen under any circumstance, and after foiling himself into a found tot, none were quick to stand up or rebuke him, cervical breath still brimming. He always snickered at his piss, fixated on illustrating tangled bottoms, fishnet helix completing an uberu of discharge, the only symbol worthy of genuflection, something ate through his composition by the genital with no remorse. Selen, having threatened to charge Assward into his lieutenant while brandishing a pistol, was reduced to driving a carriage, spending himself in rebellion against the flank of a statuesque horse. Stranded on his hemorrhoid box, customers prudishly chittering within, he began moaning against the parapeted hall to encourage some fluids besides his own, an improvement over the decor. After numerous botched attempts by relatives to restore the sanctity of marriage between Selin and his liar, the missus interrupted a game of hide-and-seek between her husband and several virgins in the wooded area behind a school. At the office of his patron, smut salesman, local pimp, and armed businessman Dugham, as in Dugham Up, he recounted this tale to a series of mute gestures, both men propositioning their handshake for a hilarious span of time, adding to the rib, whereupon Celeb retired to the cheap motel allowing him to defer bills, and swallowed a bullet so that his grin might continue. A maid was tasked with chasing away the ectoplasmic uterine squall above his enkindled scalp. From the Romance of Lust Thus day after day passed away, and Miss Evelyn became to me a goddess, a creature whom, in my heart of hearts, I literally worshipped. When she left the schoolroom and I was alone, I kissed that part of the fender her feet had pressed, and the seat on which she sat, and even the air an inch above, imagination placing there her lovely cunt. I craved for something beyond this without knowing exactly what I wanted, for as yet I really was utterly ignorant of anything appertaining to the conjunction of the sexes. One day I had gone up to my sister's bedroom where the governess slept, that I might throw myself on her bed and in imagination embrace her beautiful body. I heard someone approaching, and, knowing that I had no business there, I hid myself under the bed. The next moment Miss Evelyn herself entered and locked the door. It was about an hour before dinner. Taking off her dress and hanging it on the wardrobe, she drew out a piece of furniture which had been bought for her, the use of which had often puzzled me. She took off the lid, poured water into its basin, and placed a sponge near it. She then took off her gown, drew her petticoats and chemists up to her waist, and fastened them there, straddled across it, and seated herself upon it. I thus had the intoxicating delight of gazing on all her beautiful charms, for when she tucked up her clothes she stood before her glass, presenting to my devouring glance her glorious white bottom in all its fullness. Turning to approach the bidet, she equally exposed her lower belly and beautiful mount with all its wealth of hair, while straddling over the bidet before she sat down, the whole of her pinky-lipped cunt 
broke on my enraptured sight. Never shall I forget the wild excitement of that moment. It was almost too much for my excited senses. Fortunately, when seated, the immediate cause of my almost madness vanished. She sponged herself well between the thighs for about five minutes. She then raised herself off the bidet, and for a moment again displayed the pouting lips of her cunt, then stood fronting me for two or three minutes, while she removed, with the rinsed sponge, trickling drops of water which still gathered on the rich bush of curls around her quim. Thus her belly, mount, and thighs, whose massly fleshed and most voluptuous shape were most fully seen by me than they had heretofore been, and it may easily be conceived into what a state such a deliberate view threw me. Oh, Miss Evelyn, dear, delicious Miss Evelyn, what would you have thought had you known that I was gazing on all your angelic charms, and that my eager eyes had been straining themselves to penetrate the richness of those charming, pouting lips, which lay so snugly in that rich mass of dark curling hair? Oh, how I do long to kiss them, for at that time I had no other idea of embracing and still less of penetrating them. When her ablutions were completed, she sat down and drew off her stockings, displaying her beautiful white calves and charming little feet. I believe it was this first admiration of really exquisitely formed legs, ankles, and feet, which were extraordinarily perfect in make, that first awakened my passion for those objects, which have since always exercised a peculiar charm over me. She was also particularly neat in her shoes, little dark ones, that were bijoux to look at. I often took them up and kissed them when left in the room. Then her silk stockings, always drawn up tight and fitting like a glove, set off to the greatest advantage the remarkable fine shape of her legs. Putting on silk for cotton stockings, she took down a low bodice dress, finished her toilet, and left the room. I crawled out from under the bed, washed my face and hands in the water of the bidet, and even drank some in my excitement. Some six weeks had now elapsed since the arrival of Miss Evelyn. The passion that had seized me for her had so far kept me most obedient to her slightest command, or even wish, and, from the same cause, attentive to my lessons, when not distracted by the circumstances already detailed. My example had also had the effect of keeping my sisters much in the same groove, but it was impossible this could last. It was not nature. As long as all went smoothly, Miss Evelyn seemed to be all amiability. We fancied we could do as we liked, and we grew more careless. Miss Evelyn became more reserved and cautioned us at first, and then threatened us with the rod. We did not think she would make use of it. Mary grew impertinent, and one afternoon turned sulky over her lessons, and set our teacher at defiance. Miss Evelyn, who had been growing more and more angry, had her rise from her seat. She was obeyed with an impudent leer. Seizing her by the arm, Miss Evelyn dragged the struggling girl to the horse. My sister was strong and fought hard, using both teeth and nails, but it was to no purpose. The anger of our governess was fully roused, and raising her in her arms, she carried her forcibly to the horse, placed her on it, held her firmly with one hand while she put the noose round her with the other, which when drawn, secured her body. Other nooses secured each ankle to rings in the floor, keeping her legs apart by the projection of the horse, and also forcing the knees to bend a little, by which the most complete exposure of the bottom and, in fact, of all her private parts, too, was obtained. Miss Evelyn then left her and went to Mama for a rod. In a few minutes she returned, evidently flushed with passion, and proceeded to tie Mary's petticoats well up to her waist, leaving her bottom and her pinky slit quite bare and exposed, directly before my eyes. It was quite two months since I had last seen her private parts. 
and I was well surprised to observe the lips more pouting and swelled out, as well as the symptoms of a mousy covering of the mount much more developed. Indeed, it was in itself more exciting than I had expected, for my thoughts had so long dwelt only on the riper beauties of Miss Evelyn that I had quite ceased to have any toying with Mary. This full view of all her private parts reawakened former sensations and strengthened them. Miss Evelyn first removed her own scarf, laying bare her plump ivory shoulders, and showing the upper halves of her beautiful bubbies, which were heaving with the excitement of her anger. She bared her fine right arm, and grasping the rod, stepped back and raised her arm. Her eyes glistened in a peculiar way. She was indeed beautiful to see. I shall never forget that moment. It was but a moment. The rod whistled through the air and fell with a cruel cut on poor Mary's plump little bottom. The flesh quivered again, and Mary, who had resolved not to cry, flushed in her face and bit the damask with which the horse was covered. Again, the arm was raised, and again, with a sharp whistle, it fell on the palpating buttocks below it. Still, her stubborn temper bore her up, and although we saw how she winced, not a sound escaped her lips. Drawing back a step, Miss Evelyn again raised her hand and arm, and this time her aim was so true that the longer points of the rod doubled between the buttocks and concentrated themselves between the lips of Mary's privates. So agonizing was the pain that she screamed out dreadfully. Again the rod fell precisely on the same spot. Oh, 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 dear Miss Evelyn, I will never, no, never do so again. Her shrieks were of no avail. Cut succeeded cut. Yell succeeded yell, until the rod was worn to a stump and poor Mary's bottom was one mass of wheels and red as raw beef. It was fearful to see, and yet such is our nature that to see it was, at the same time, exciting. I could not keep my eyes from her pouting quim, the swelling lips of which, under the severity of the punishment it was undergoing, not only seemed to thicken, but actually opened and shut, and evidently throbbed with agony. But all this was highly exciting for me to witness. I then and there resolved to have a closer inspection at a more convenient opportunity, which did not fail me in the end. Meanwhile, her spirit was completely cowed, or rather crushed. Indeed, we were all fully frightened, and now knew what we had to expect if we did not behave ourselves. There was now no fear of any manifestation of temper, and we felt we must indeed obey implicitly whatever our governess chose to order. We instinctively learned to fear her. Ross Lanyok by Matt Forney Miklos Horvi went to orgies. Janos Kadar liked leather. Ferenc Shalazi was executed for being vanilla. Imre Naj died for the right to fuck. Georgiani loses elections because he's faithful to his wife. Seal was laughed out of parliament because she couldn't come. Every Hungarian woman has a vibrator budget. She won't jill off without scented candles and bath bombs. She's not considered a real woman until her first threesome. She dreams of horsecocks from her racial memories of the Kazakh steppe. Circumcision is worse than being a madlet. Instead of saying son of a bitch, a Hungarian will call you a piece of cum. If he's really mad, he'll say, lick my ass out. They stole that from Mozart, and it's the real reason they miss the Habsburgs. There are sex shops in the Budapest metro if you need lingerie on your way home from work. Prostitution is legal. Strippers vote for Jobbik. 
and the border wall is manned by retired porn stars. I know this for a fact. In Hungary, fascists fuck better. I was drinking with a fascist. He told me that there was a club that had unlimited booze for only 10,000 forints. I was sold. We got a cab to the suburbs. I paid the entrance fee, and the clerk handed me a towel and pointed to the changing room. I said, what the fuck? The secret alt-right hangout in Budapest was a swingers club. I stripped and went straight to the bar, intent on getting every drop out of that 10,000 forints. The fascist met his uncle there, a heartwarming family moment as they tag-teamed a chunky six with feta cheese thighs. The CK land flag hung over the door, far out of reach of any missed money shots. I was approached by an accountant with glasses and biceps, the kind of man women think of when they say they like nerdy guys. He said, I'll let you fuck my wife, but only if I can watch. She was 20 pounds overweight and biting her lip, staring at my hairy man tits. I thought about jumping in the Danube and never coming up. Instead, I chugged my drare and said, Sure. She knew how to play the part at least, moaning mechanically, thrusting her hips, even translating fuck me into English in hopes of rescuing my fading hard-on. Every so often, I caught a glance of her husband in the corner, shucking his corn cob with peasant efficiency. The bedroom was decked out in Bronx crack house decor, complete with fake graffiti and a neon sign for that authentic Times Square 1970s manslaughter aesthetic. The remnants of my dignity spilled out on her fat cheeks, dribbling down to her pancake titties. Afterwards, the husband offered me a cigar. The wife said she loved how my balls slapped against her clit in perfect rhythm. I had done my part to undo Trianon, my hard dick, an instrument of American soft power, paying reparations for Woodrow Wilson with my cum. Trump will make me ambassador. The U.S. Embassy will become a whorehouse. Serbia will give back Vajvadina in exchange for five orgasms a week. Transylvania will revolt because Romanian women are dead fish and the men are premature ejaculators. When the war with China starts, I'll lead the Magyars into battle with promises of Asian GFs. The steppe nomads are back. The horse lords will reign supreme over Beijing again, but this time they will come from the west, and they will not wield arrows or swords, but cock rings and dildos. Our Genghis Khan will own a porn studio, his tree-trunk penis the envy of every housewife. Inseldom will become a public health crisis, solved with sweet sixteens at the local bordello. That's the Hungarian way, a chicken in every pot, and a load in every Whole. Coyote in the shadow, people. Coyote's wife takes sick and dies. 
Stranded at the bottom of his grief, he calls upon and is visited by death, whose undumberated visage materializes in stages. Please, sir, bring my wife back, if only for a day. Death has one condition. You must do everything and anything I tell you. Obey blindly. Coyote concedes, trailing behind death at a great distance. They rest on a cliff. Observe the beautiful horses trotting through the valley below, says Death. Seeing nothing, Coyote agrees without question. Death pantomimes, picking berries from a tree. Coyote joins him, seconding the meal's deliciousness. They enter a vast desert, nigh a soul discernible. Death tells Coyote he will ask one of the many surrounding occupants as to the whereabouts of his wife. Somehow they are led past many dunes to a stranded patch. Here we have found your wife dwelling in her extravagant residence. She'll be pleased to cook us dinner. Coyote, sat on sand, pretends to eat, tasting nothing. In the realm of death, your days are our nights. Wait here patiently, and she will become visible. Shadows morph from contours into a lovely home filled with people Coyote once knew. There stands his wife, beaming healthily. They partake of a delicious celebration, a night-long reunion. Everyone fades with the sun, leaving Coyote to wait in the heat, chapped and dehydrated. With the cool evening, his loved ones return, nourishing him however possible, grief and longing sated in a renewed bond. Coyote suffers daily, awaiting his wife, eager to behold her again and again. Finally, death must enforce a departure to alleviate Coyote's reluctance. Death allows him to leave with his wife on one condition. They must travel over five mountains. With the passing of each mountain, Coyote's wife will appear in increments, increasingly tangible, before turning fully human once more. Coyote may speak with her specter, but only after the fifth mountain may they touch. Her shape sings as they travel. Slowly, her beauty glows into a vision. Death prays Coyote may bolster his restraint. After the fourth mountain on the fourth night, Coyote's beloved is almost complete, as if ordained beyond instinct. Terminated into an impulse, he runs to her. Before she can implore Coyote to cease, he trips into an unrestrained embrace. She disappears in his arms. An infuriated death bursts in. Coyote's impertinence has caused the dead to part entirely from the living. Mankind can go cling to its sciences. Now even death has abandoned Coyote. In untold desperation, Coyote retraces each step that began their mission. He sees the field where death mentioned horses and comments on their beauty to no one. He eats invisible berries. He runs to the desert asking the heir where his wife's house is. Day in and day out, he props himself on the same stranded patch. At night, nothing. Silence the next night, the next. Countless evenings pass. The husk of Coyote withers into weather. Nowhere to be found, awaiting a wife he'd never know again, even as a shadow. The End Anything They Can Do by Alphonse Allais. Little Madeleine Bastille might have been the most fascinating and desirable woman of the entire 19th century, but for one small annoying fault. She was incapable of taking a lover without immediately being unfaithful to him. For most people, broad-mindedness means taking one thing with another. For her, it meant only taking one man with another. 
When our story starts, her lover was a fine upstanding young man called Jean Passé, or the firm Jean Passé et des Milliers. Not only was Jean Passé a decent sort, he was also a credit to the Paris business world. So, of course, he was determined to do the honorable thing by Madeleine. Not so Madeleine. She was unfaithful to him at the first opportunity. Jean was heartbroken. But what has he got that I haven't got, he asked. He's so handsome, sighed Madeleine. We'll see about that, muttered Jean. Love is strong. The will is all-powerful. When Jean came home that evening, he had been transformed into the most handsome man in the world, beside whom the Archangel Gabriel would have looked as ugly as sin. The second time Madeleine was unfaithful to Jean, Jean asked Madeleine, And what has he got that I haven't got? Money, said Madeleine. Right, gritted Jean. And that very day, he invested a cheap, simple, non-labor-intensive process for converting horse dung into the most exquisite plush velvet. American manufacturers fought among themselves in the attempt to pour millions of dollars into his pockets. The third time Madeleine was unfaithful to John, John asked Madeleine, And what has he got that I haven't got? He's got a sense of humor, that's what, said Madeleine. Right, grunted John. And he headed straight to the Flammarion bookshop to buy Pas de Belle, the latest collection of pieces by famed author Alphonse Alès. He read it from cover to cover and back again, till he was so impregnated with the spirit of this unique book that Madeline could hardly get to sleep at night for laughing. The fourth time Madeline was unfaithful to Jean, Jean asked Madeline, And what has he got that I haven't got? Well, said Madeline, she could not put it into words, but her blazing eyes said it for her. Jean understood. Right, he cried. If this were a pornographic publication, I can now tell you what John did next and we could all enjoy ourselves. Sadly, it isn't, and we can't. The fifth time Madeline was unfaithful. Oh, forget it. The hundredth and fourth time Madeline was unfaithful to John. John asked Madeline, and what has he got that I haven't got? He's very special, said Madeline. He's a murderer. Is he now, said John, and he killed her. It was about this time that Madeline gave up being unfaithful to John. The amount of porn they raised me on was an experiment in terror. A generation of millennial campons, but you and I, split by time, were done pricking our voodoo dolls of each other. I spotted you in the crowd, dressed short as ever an arbitrary reunion between vehicles, the thick tension of a glance, like when we first met. Slipping towards privacy, some shadowed passage beneath an overpass, I bulged, patterned, round your rear, a tourniquet of frottage leaked between us. The few moments I could fill my hands with you, spanning cup size right to the pre-cum in your smile. Stroked 800 frames per second, burnt alive on sight. One prolonged horripilation, the cum we were about to come gripped inside for decades, showing itself as a second circulation beat into your uterus, flesh untouched by sunlight. Heat generating from a cloaked source. Trembling prey teased along teeth. Eruption pinched in. Nights we missed soon to be explicated sleeplessly. These years slabbed together outside of you. Growing shorter in the dark. Flicked through my own bowels to return to yours. How you are brought awake to fill yourself. I've jerked off forever in the scraps. 
strafing an old broom handle across the small of my back till the splinters snagged and stuck out porcupined, charting astrological vulnerabilities. Bodies dropped off the overpass to the rhythm of our kiss. You broke away to prevent a child from drinking an oily puddle, gathered in the smoke with someone else's son. The border of your womb split its likeness down his face. He clung to you with such affection, a grinning amendment of unfulfilled fertility. Other kids gathered, none you could refuse. They applied lighters to your feet, tore your cleavage exposed, balking into lactation, gumming you like bait. Everything a rash adorns, pressed above a running car engine, stray strands of hair catching the fan. I tackled gaps in the procession, smashed their bones smaller than yours, more bones to count in the breaking. Ambulances horned in, rolling us under a tarp. Miles down the street we went, glass in our clothes, and I took you at last, one skin scraped together, an entire weather in the cement. I can't look away from how much I love you. The sun is just your flushing piss. We refuse to be consumed for solitudes whose seeds receive the blank check of a fingernail. When you die, they will recede into the final percentage of a sail. They don't grow underground. Your skeleton pushes past them in its hurry to the surface. In my youth, I found jackass at the morgue online. 90s prankster uploads through a lesser-known file-sharing program, corpses arrayed in embarrassing sexual poses. When it came my turn to share, the other members realized I was just some non-participant teen. Sirens began circling my house at night, pausing in the driveway. A man followed me home from the store, insisting he be granted access to a phone. I said I'd go retrieve him one and came out holding a machete behind my back. Stepping behind a parked car, he spoke something akin to Latin. The next day I felt sick, like my muscles fit wrong. At the hospital, I was led through a series of rooms, each smaller than the last. The final room was the size of a morgue drawer. A nurse insisted on giving me a shot in the ass, whereupon my symptoms permanently worsened. He opened the drawer to reveal the cadaver of a beautiful woman. She was somewhat fresh, posable by rigor mortis. Heave into the constriction, he insisted. Top notch. I'll give you two some privacy. Things were slow going at first, till I could really trust her. We began seeing each other more often than weekends, a sizable commitment. I did feel chemically smitten, convinced myself she was different. My parents even gifted her perfumes. The honeymoon phase extended its stay. One day a leak in the decay proved she'd been used before my arrival. We had to have a talk. I spoke at her all night. She went into the drawer alone. The nurse, noticing my expression, put a hand on my shoulder, cleared his sinuses, and spat a mammoth amassment of them in my face. Love is trying to make something mediocre fresh again, and all it costs is everything, he said. A man unrewarded for his work must tend to the space where his dick was, transitioning against his will an unintentional lady. I don't possess the credentials to be considered sexy, I said. He had my girl on his lap, some kind of runny CPR. Please don't exchange regurgitations with my beloved. That's our special secret intimacy. Don't worry, I'm just eating her tongue. Oh, I exclaimed, relieved and in reflection. Oh, a series of extreme reveals from whoever you've bothered to care about allows for a detachable life. <laughs> Kabali Ituri by Kenneth Patchen. 
I told her that my mother would make a bed and supper for us, but it was already dark and I had lost the way. Mother will give us food and coffee, and we shall sleep in my old room. The moon will stand on the window, and we shall be as children again, I said. But I had lost the way, and it was already dark in the forest. Mother will cry a bit, because she is old, and does your mother speak English, she said. As well as a book, I told her, rubbing my sleeve over my nose, which had started to bleed. And your father wears shoes? Of course he does. My brother can drive a car, and my sister is noted for her beauty. We had by now reached the bank of a swollen river, and I told her to undress, and we started across. But the water was full of tiny horses that snapped at our ankles with long, pointed teeth. So we swam back, and we stretched out under a giant tree. Does your mother dye her hair? she asked, slipping into her panties. How should I know? I said, beginning to shiver. I took her coat and slipped it over my shoulders. Where did you say your mother was born? She was born into a gentle house that sat high on a hill overlooking a valley. I put out my hand to her and touched something that felt like thick water. Striking a match, I saw a fat man with a little round black hole in his head. He had been grinning happily when he died. A large dog sat at his feet. He held a box in his left hand from which spilled a number of picture postcards. Big drops of water were hitting down through the leaves. It's raining, I said, opening our lunchbox and taking out a bacon tomato sandwich. How long has your mother had these dizzy spells? She will put the supper all out on the table, and after we've eaten, we'll climb the stairs up to my old room, and it will be like, say, it's beginning to rain, she said, pushing over near and trying to struggle under her coat. I shoved her off, and she got up and went crashing away through the trees. I called after her once softly. She did not answer, so I caught up and ran along at her side until we came to a little town. Lights were on in all the houses and people were singing, and there was the sound of children laughing at games. I knocked at a door and my mother opened it. She smiled when she saw me and I stretched out my arms to her, but she turned quickly and the house grew dark. Then, one by one, the lights in all that village went out, and we stood in the cold rain while somewhere a little way off, the rumble of heavy guns shook the ground. Departure by Gottfried Ben. You fill me up as blood the laceration and run down the track its darkness leaves. Like night upon you spread in tardy variation where the fading hillside colors shadow sheaves. You flower like heavy roses in every garden. You, solitude from bearing loss and age. You, still surviving when our dreams dishearten, suffering and knowledge too often on your page. Early estranged from reality's illusion, denying yourself the quickly proffered world, exhausted by the details in confusion, of which not one around the deep self uncurled. Now from that depth itself that none can fathom, forever yet to word or sign unknown, your needs must take your silence in the cavern of night and grief of roses overblown. Sometimes you reflect your self-expression, and was that really you a memory lapse? Was that your image? Was that not your question, your word, your light of heaven, your own perhaps? My word, my light of heaven, squandered, destroyed. Whoever had such a fate must learn his lesson. Forget yourself. Old hours are to avoid. A final day, late glowing, open spaces flowing. Water leads you to a distant shore. Exalted light streams through the tree-filled places. In counterplay with shadows making more. Nowhere are fruits. No coronet of seed heads. No harvest home. For him, of questions not a shred. He plays his game. He feels his light. To read beds, he sinks without remembering. All is said. <laughs> Jules Romains, and the body's rapture, the Lord God of the flesh, 
The union of our bodies no longer found satisfaction in being merely the accomplishment of a ritual of mutual admiration. It became also revenge against absence, a struggle against separation, a kind of tragic affirmation. The caresses which preceded our embraces did not now address themselves only to that obscure divinity the lover divines in another's flesh, but they sought also to comfort the heart that had in absence closed upon itself, and to be utterly comforting, and to protect the intertwined couple from even the shadow of a threat. Weldon Keys for my daughter. Looking into my daughter's eyes, I read beneath the innocence of morning flesh concealed, hintings of death she does not heed. Coldest of winds have blown this hair, and mesh of seaweed snarled these miniatures of hands. That night's slow poison, tolerant and bland, has moved her blood. Parched years that I have seen, that may be hers appear, foul lingering. Death in certain war, the slim legs green, or fed on hate, she relishes the sting of others' agony, perhaps the cruel bride of a syphilitic or a fool. These speculations sour in the sun. I have no daughter. I desire none. Too much psychological brouhaha had overshadowed the glowing embers and bejeweled thoughts that were hidden in different capsules or different compartments that had a mental stature of a reflectionary. Different streams fed into different lives, and the insectoid consciousness shredded the path towards steel and strength. The provocation of the hive and pure fucking raw existence shattered delusions when the essence and the essence alone remains. The morphic resonance from human to lizard person and that kind of transformation hidden in different fields of perception when the lizardism is more widely known and recognized and understood. The activation of a molecule weakened and misshapen through years of bad existence. I can see the molecules percolating in some kind of ether, or some kind of slime, or some kind of earthy residue, when the vitalist in me can realize, through the bubbly mist and watery sort of floating substance, the associations and false endeavors, problematic shit that will turn against the impulse, the freaky chest cords that sprouted out of sand, but what if eggs were oceans? And what if trees were guitar pedals, and the sound of a buffalo stomping on a crystal ball was the same as a parachute that landed on Mercury? These are the sounds of frozen time fields, guided by energy, raw freak wave energy, earth rocker energy, essential energy, hidden energy, twisted energy. I hope you can feel the energy. I get spaced out on it. Wasted and wounded. From Revolution Surrealist. B. What is rape? P. The love of speed. Baby by Maxwell Bodenheim. 
The blue beginning of your eyes condensed the sprawling and assured blue with which the sky retreats from those obscene confessions known as days. Again, your battling mites of blue try to stop the revolving monster of life and find the indelible persuasiveness of single forms within the circling blur, sundered bits of a soul astonished at their shrunken estate. They are not sure that they have still survived and plead for the conviction of sight. But when they recollect the hugely placid manners of their life before the earthly exile made them small and fastened to one pathetic puzzle, their blue reverts to swelling reveries whose outward circles spurned the curtained jail upon your softly incomplete face where germs of devils stir in curves that tremble into questioning symmetries. A thrust of darkness sometimes interferes with secret, virgin places underneath your eyes and where your leaf-thin nostrils pause. This darkness bends with helpless messages, like history admonishing a world personified in one composite face. To the Eternal Madam by Tristan Corbiere, who would walk his dog on a leash so long several pedestrians would become tangled in its span. Mannequin of the ideal, half whipping boy, half bait, eternal feminine, iron your kerchiefs and come get on my lap when I say it's time and show me how you do it your way, fallen angels. Be worse and make our joy wretched. Stamp lightly along love's arduous paths. Bring damnation on yourself, chaste idol, and laugh and sing and weep, lover, and die of love. When we've nothing better to do, marble maiden in heat, be frolicsome and pensive, mistress, flesh of my flesh. Be a lascivious virgin, ferocious, holy, and stupid when you search for my heart. Be the female of the male and serve as muse, O woman, when the poet is bellowing heart, smart, and dart. Then, while he's snoring, come kiss your conqueror. Ernest Dowson, because I am idolatrist and have besought with grievous supplication and consuming prayer the admirable image that my dreams have wrought, out of her swan's neck and her dark abundant hair, the jealous gods who brook no worship save their own, turned my live idol and her heart to stone. Stefan George Oh, that your whim restored you to my sight. Let not a newer form obliterate the past. It was my task through endless night to conjure you devoutly trait by trait. In vain, a steady rain of bitter lie mists and obscures what painfully I scored. It pales. How is your hair and how your eye? It pales and trembles in a dying chord. Mm -hmm.